It's great to see everyone here today. This is the second of our public history seminars this year, which we're now uh, partnering with National Library to bring you um, in this, this, this great venue. And I'm really pleased to um, welcome Catherine Knight here today. Um, Catherine is, is well known as an environmental historian and the author over the last, the last few years of two, two great books, um, both of which the Ministry has been pleased to uh, help support in some way through the New Zealand History Research Trust Fund. Uh, so in 2014, Catherine uh, published Ravaged Beauty, an environmental history of, Manu of the Manawatu, um, which uh, won the, the J.M. Sherard Major Award for Excellence in Regional History. And then last year, uh, she published New Zealand Rivers, um, published by Canterbury University Press, which has been long listed for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards and selected as one of the listeners' best books for 2016. Please welcome Catherine. It is really great to see so many people here on a quite a blustery day. But um, thank you for inviting me to do this talk, and thank you, um, Neil. Um, Neil's chief historian at the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, and, and he approached me about doing a talk, and of course I very enthusiastically said yes, uh, because I, um, as Joan mentioned, I did a talk a few years back and really enjoyed uh, doing a talk here. It's a great venue. So I thought I'd start with just talking about environmental history a little bit. When researching some aspect of environmental history or another, a question that I relentlessly badger myself with is, this is all very interesting, but does knowing our history help us make better choices now and into the future? Obviously, I'm utterly biased, but in the, case of the in, in the case of rivers, I would have to emphatically say yes. I think knowing our past is a critical foundation for decisions into the future. And I think there are two key reasons for this. It is only by knowing how we have treated our environment in the past that we know how much has been lost or degraded, in some cases beyond repair, already. Without this knowledge, how can we know what more we are willing to sacrifice? To provide a more tangible example, the prevailing rhetoric today in policy and political circles is around balance when it comes to the supposed juxtaposition between environment and economy. This discourse of balance, which underpins the evaluation of environmental effects, in other words, what we are prepared to destroy or lose as a result of a development or an activity, usually takes as its baseline the situation today. But when we take into account what has been lost or degraded in the past, and absorbed into what we have normalised as the environment today, the baseline shifts dramatically. Secondly, there is that old adage about not repeating mistakes of history, but in fact, this is true. It is very difficult to avoid making the same mistakes of the past if we don't know about them. When we examine our history in respect to our treatment of rivers, there will be a number of things that seem very familiar. That is because we are repeating those mistake, mistakes today, as I will touch on in this talk. 
Before we get uh, into this discussion, though, I thought I would begin my talk with how I came to write about New Zealand's rivers. It was most definitely not because I'm an expert in rivers. In some ways, this was a strength because it provided for a level of objectivity that someone with a passion for rivers would not necessarily be able to bring to the subject. And for me, objectivity is a really important thing. So back to how I came to write this book. In 2014, as Neil mentioned, my first book, Ravage Beauty, an environmental history of the Manawatu, was published. Ravage Beauty was about the place I came from, the Manawatu, one of the most transformed landscapes in New Zealand. As one major publisher put it, who then went on to politely uh, decline to publish the book, the Manawatu, not the most enigmatic place, is it? Maybe not at first glance, but for me, researching that book was an absolute revelation, actually a series of revelations. With a bit of digging, the unassuming, some say boring, plains and hill country of the Manawatu revealed many intriguing secrets, among them footprints of long-extinct moor and the forest refuge of a self-exiled Danish prime minister. In essence... Ravaged beauty was an endeavour of the heart, rather than driven by a burning need out there to know the environmental history of the region. For my second book, I wanted the topic to be rewarding for me as a writer and researcher, but I also wanted the book to meet a need, preferably on a national scale. So I sought the advice of one of our leading environmental historians, Professor Tom Brooking at Otago University. He immediately suggested rivers. He recommended bookending the book with two significant events, as is customary for university-trained uh, historians. But not being university-trained, at least not in history, I quietly chose to ignore that custom and instead, unable to help myself, began with geological time and ended with events today. But today, for the sake of my voice and your sanity and the fact that you'll probably need to get back to work or other things, I will at least bookend this talk. So I thought I would focus on the period between the dawning of the scenery preservation era in the de first decades of the 20th century and the wild and scenic rivers era of the 1980s. In the early 20th century, there was growing disquiet about the loss of much of New Zealand's natural heritage to progress. And out of the ashes, not only metaphorically speaking, the scenery preservation movement emerged. This led to the Scenery Preservation Act of 1903 and state acquisition of reserves throughout New Zealand. However, as the name of the Act suggests, the movement was not driven by ecological understandings of the environment, but rather a very Victorian sense of scenery. Thus, the emphasis was on landscapes that were aesthetically appealing. Lowland forests and lakes were deemed picturesque, while swamps and rivers less so. So while efforts to preserve the, the, some last vestiges of New Zealand's indigenous heritage had gained momentum in the first decades of the 20th century, 
the exploitation of rivers was only just beginning. New Zealand's rivers were generally too wild and unpredictable to be regarded as picturesque. The Avon River in Christchurch and the Whanganui River were exceptions that proved this rule. Instead, with the exception of a handful of intrepid types, or lunatics, depending on one's point of view, who, in handcrafted canoes, pitted themselves against river, rivers for the sheer adventure of it, rivers continued to be perceived in a purely, purely utilitarian way, as a source of water for households, farming and industry, as power for generating electricity, and most unceremoniously as drains. Their fast-flowing, turbulent nature, along with their relative shallowness compared to the majestic rivers of Europe and Britain, made New Zealand's rivers unsuitable for shipping. But these same characteristics made them excellent drains. Thus, when the population of the colony was still sparse, the sewage, sawmilling waste, gold mining waste and other industrial waste spewed into rivers and streams was pushed out to sea on the current, causing no apparent harm. The role of rivers as drains is not just a case of historic revisionism. This function was embedded in the legislation of the time. The Goldfields Act Amendment Act of 1875 allowed the government to proclaim a watercourse as a sludge channel for the disposing of mining waste. That was the actual term. At least they were honest. The treatment of rivers as drains began to unra unravel in the first decade of the 20th century, when farmers began to complain that the dumping of gold mining waste was silting up rivers elevating riverbeds and making rivers more flood-prone, smothering the surrounding land with thick layers of silt. The worst affected was the Ohinemuri River in the Thames-Coromandel district. Eventually, the government caved in to the mounting pressure and appointed a rivers commission to investigate damage to rivers and riparian land. Its causes and how it should be addressed, and who should pay for the works required. More than a dozen rivers were investigated in this way during the 1910s and 1920s. Importantly, however, the Commission did not question the merits of the human actions that had caused the damage in the first place, the one exception being tussock burning in the Clutha River catchment. Its identification of the causes was simply to enable it to, to determine how to distribute the burden of costs. Instead, the emphasis was on fixing or improving rivers through diversions, straightening, stop banks, and the judicious planting of trees. In the Manawatū, where I come from, there was a special commission set up in 1926 to look into the viability of a proposal to create a permanent cut in the Manawatū River, bypassing several loops and shortening it by 21 miles. 
The Manawatu Oroa River Commission agreed that the scheme would bring numerous benefits to the region and recommended it go ahead, but the government, probably put off by the cost, sat on its hands and the scheme never eventuated. Nevertheless, the proposal did foreshadow the Motua floodway, completed nearly three decades later, which circumvents the wildly looping course of the river between Motua and Foxton in times of flood, and which even today remains one of the largest and most effective flood schemes in New Zealand. The perception of rivers as machines that could be harnessed and adjusted, apparently without limit, to optimise human benefits prevailed well into the post-war years. By this time, numerous rivers had had hydroelectric dams built on them. In some cases, these hydro dams seriously affected the river, including diminishing its flows, severing migration routes of eels and other fish, and causing the build-up of siltation. Māori values and cultural heritage was, was, were also ignored, or literally submerged in the case of hydro dams on the Waikato River, where burial caves were inundated by the reservoir for the Karapiro scheme, and the bones of tribal ancestors left to float away on the current. Initially, few voiced concerns about the exploitation of rivers. Anyone with misgivings knew that the need for electricity generation to power a growing economy and expanding cities would prevail over other considerations. To be fair, anglers and acclimatisation societies had been voicing concerns about waste and pollutants discharged into rivers as early as the 1880s, when the main culprit was the gold miner. But their primary concern was the health of, of the introduced fisheries of trout and salmon, rather than the health or ecological integrity of the river itself. This awareness and concern only developed later. Indeed, um, and I sometimes I'm wary of saying this in case there's um, anglers in the audience, the introduction of exotic fish in the late uh, 19th century, much larger and more aggressive than their diminutive indigenous cousins, irrevocably altered the delicate ecological balance of rivers and may have been at least partly responsible, we don't know, for the extinction of the grayling last seen in the 1920s. And the grayling, as you probably know, is the one fish that one native fish of our around 40, uh, freshwater fish, uh, that has uh, gone extinct. I also hastily need to add here, so as not to offend any anglers or acclimatisation society member, fish and game members in the audience, that fish and game grew to be one of New Zealand's most effective and influential advocates for the environment, and I dedicate an entire chapter to the transformation of acclimatisation societies from their initial role, which I often liken to playing God in some respects, into their role today as an environmental protectors. However, as I said at the beginning, in the interests of time, I need to bookend this talk, and that chapter in our environmental history is a little outside the second bookend. So going back to the discussion of this evolution and the prevailing attitude towards our rivers, 
The turning point came in the 1970s with the emergence of an organised fraternity of rafters and canoeists. Initially small in number, over time canoeing groups mushroomed throughout the country under the loose aegis of the National Canoeing Association. It was these groups that first expressed alarm at the progressive loss of New Zealand's scenically outstanding and wild rivers and argued for the need to preserve, preserve rivers for their recreational value. Inspired by the American system for protecting wild and scenic rivers, canoe clubs advocated that outstanding wild and scenic rivers such as the Motu, Wanganui and the Buller should be designated in a way similar to a national park. Canoe clubs around the country also made their opposition to local hydroelectricity generation projects clear. For example, in 1975, Ross Douglas of the Wellington Canoe Club wrote to the Commission for the Environment expressing the club's view on the proposed Ōtaki scheme. He wrote, We are concerned that past schemes have already destroyed many of our canoeable rivers and we refer to such rivers as the Clutha, the Waikato and the Waitaki. It follows, therefore, that we are concerned about our national waterways. We would seriously suggest that the government give some thought to a preservation of our national waterways, which we consider our, na our national heritage. This view was shared by the new, newly established Commission for the Environment, which in 1977 released a discussion paper proposing legislation to protect wild and scenic rivers. In 1981, the Wild Rivers Amendment to the Water and Soil Conservation Act 1967 was enacted. Within a year, the QE2 Trust had applied for the first water conservation order over the Motu River. Considered by some as New Zealand's best whitewater river, and the North Island's last real wilderness. But it was not always canoeing that was the central driving force for the protection of rivers. In the case of the Manganui Oteao River in the North Island Central Plateau, the river's importance as habitat, habitat for trout and blue duck, or fio, were also dominant arguments. By this time, human pressures had forced the fio to retreat into the upper catchment of remote rivers. So when a hydro scheme was proposed on the river, there was a, an eruption of grassroots uh, opposition. The opposition was unusual in its breadth. Not only were locals, recreational and conservation groups opposed, but also four government departments the Wildlife Division of Internal Affairs, Lands and Survey Department, the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, and the Commission for the Environment. Eventually, in 1982, a minimum flow was set for the river, affording it some protection. Later, in 1989, a water conservation order was also gazetted over the river. In the early 1980s, the river became the site of the first in-depth study of the fio in its natural habitat. The four-year study became the foundation for work on fio throughout the country. 
This study is unlikely to have been possible had the river been significantly modified by a hydroelectricity uh, dam, providing the rivers, uh, proving the river's uh, value as a wild river. The Wild Rivers legislation was a major step forward in terms of the protection of our rivers, but by definition, it was only the ones deemed special, mainly from an aesthetic and experiential perspective, that were given any protection. As we know today, an unseen but no less pernicious threat to rivers was gaining momentum. Agricultural runoff, also known as diffuse discharges. Unlike dams and hydro stations or pipes carrying discharges from factories or sewage treatment plants, this pressure on rivers did not reveal itself clearly until the early 1990s. Combined with the mounting pressure from agricultural runoff was the increased use of river, river water and aquifers for irrigation to support pastoral farming in drier regions. Much like climate change, more than a decade was lost arguing over whether or not agricultural discharges were a threat to our freshwater bodies and over the relative magnitude of the problem and therefore responsibility to address it. Sound familiar? Thankfully, today we seem to have moved beyond the endless arguments about whether intensive agriculture has been responsible for the degradation of our rivers and lakes. This seems beyond doubt but there is still a strong reluctance on the part of successive governments to do anything that will encumber or constrain agriculture, the backbone of our economy. This stance is uncannily reminiscent of the government's reluctance to interfere with the gold mining industry in the early 20th century, which was responsible for choking numerous rivers with its waste, this problem was not addressed by government intervention. Instead, it was resolved by the decline of the industry itself. The resource became depleted and alluvial mining became economically unsustainable. Few of us would like to see a repeat of this for agriculture. It would be so much better, surely, if we would simply, could simply find a way to farm and carry out other economic endeavours in a way that does not deplete or degrade our natural resources and precious heritage. This would, in my view, be progress in the true sense of the word. And now I'd like to uh, end with an epilogue of sorts. When I was finishing my manuscript for New Zealand's Rivers in 2016, I was somewhat mystified about why swimmability, that word that we probably all know now, had not become a big issue for New Zealanders, despite it touching on so many ordinary New Zealanders' lives and indeed our identity as New Zealanders. In the book, I described how the issue of swimmable rivers was being raised by the Green Party, by a newly fledged campaign called the Choose Clean Water Campaign, led by some young New Zealanders, and iwi leaders too, who have maintained their refusal to accept wadeability as the minimum standard for our rivers and lakes. Naitahu leader Mark Solomon had recently described the standard, the wadeability standard, as ridiculous, explaining, when a child goes down to the river, they don't stop and say, is this river wadeable or swimmable? They jump. 
But despite this noise from the edges, the issue had not broken through into the realm of widespread public discourse. Well, a year later, all of this has changed. The government released its proposal to make 90% of New Zealand's rivers and lakes swimmable by 2040 um, in February. I can only imagine anticipating that it would be broadly welcomed as the pest-free New Zealand 2050 strategy was a few months before. But instead, the announcement triggered huge controversy. Opposition parties and NGOs and some scientists argued that the swimmability standard had simply been lowered. And others, such as the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, were merely confused. Many have expressed dismay at the announcement, but I don't feel dismay. Finally, this issue is getting the attention it deserves. I am pleased, too, that we are getting some intelligent discussion that upends some long-held assumptions, something else I cover in the book. Economist Shamabil Yaqib has recently questioned whether the benefits we get from dairy farming are worth the environmental price we pay and other economic opportunities lost, and also argued that New Zealand's economy would not collapse even if all dairy ceased tomorrow. I don't profess to know the answer to these questions, but I am glad that these debates are finally happening. I think we are witnessing, if you will pardon the pun, a watershed, not necessarily in, in seeing imminent change in our environment or how we treat it, but in terms of New, Zealand, New Zealanders' awareness of the legacy of the historic abuse of our rivers and the implications that that has for us today. And as an environmental historian, I can't help wonder how these developments will be recorded in our history, whether they will be held up as a model to follow or a mistake for future generations to avoid. But aside from being an environmental historian who prides herself in being unrelentingly analytical and objective, I'm also a parent. As a parent, and as I find myself firmly ensconced in middle age, yes, it's true, I'm experiencing an increasing sense of urgency in terms of our rivers and our environment more generally, the legacy I'm going to leave my children and their children and a deeply held concern that because of the value we place on short-term profits and political expediency, we are allowing our children's future and their future choices to slip away. Thank you.